You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Diaspora Blues acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Welcome to another week of Diaspora Blues on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55 a.m. on Bigwa. We hope you've been looking after yourself during this lockdown and wearing your face covering when out in public. Speaking of face masks, we want to say a few words about the $200 fine for not wearing one. Instead of issuing fines, why don't police issue masks instead? Not everyone has disposable income to buy face coverings in bulk. If you Google your favorite health and beauty retailer, you'll notice two things. One, Masks are either out of stock or two, thanks to price gouging, are too expensive to buy. Price gouging, by the way, is when retailers increase the prices of essential goods during times of crisis. So what does this look like? For example, alcohol-based disinfectants that would regularly go for $10 are being jacked up to $40 by unethical sellers. But I suppose... Everyone can just make a mask from home, right? True, but not everybody owns a sewing machine. And don't forget, you also have to purchase the cloth to make the masks. So is the solution to stop wearing masks altogether? Absolutely not. But there has to be a better way to keep the community safe and finding people just ain't it. Earlier in the year, journalist Osman Faruqi did a little dig into New South Wales' COVID-19 fines. He discovered that Liverpool, Canterbury, Bankstown and Fairfield, all ethnically diverse communities, accounted for 15% of the fines. But these communities did not have the highest recorded COVID-19 cases. That honour went to the more affluent suburbs of Sydney. And check this out, these wealthier suburbs only racked up 1.8% of infringements. So in other words, these rich suburbs had more cases, but fewer fines. We just, I mean, we're just wondering why. We wonder why. Victoria police have discretionary powers when it comes to enforcing fines. This means that not every person they catch will be issued a fine. That puts a lot of power in police hands. And for us, that raises more than a few red flags, right? Because at the moment, we have 400 plus Aboriginal deaths in custody, we have a system where police investigate police. And thanks to Osman Faruqi's research, we also know now fines are not being issued evenly across suburbs. Osman actually did an excellent episode on policing and COVID-19 for the podcast 7am. The episode is called The Truth About Coronavirus Fines, and we recommend you check it out. 
This week on Diaspora Blues, we're joined by Dr. Zuleika Zavalos, an applied sociologist and the founder of the blog, The Other Sociologist. Dr. Zuleika chatted to us about moral panic, a concept that might not be new to many of our listeners. And in today's episode, she discusses how this phenomenon is playing out in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll also hear a tune by Sampa the Great and discuss the new visuals for Time's Up as well as share updates about her campaign to support African youth accessing culturally appropriate mental health support. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. As we told you earlier, Dr Zuleika Zavaios is an applied sociologist. She's also the founder of the blog Other Sociologist, which we definitely recommend you check out, especially if you're interested in understanding how social theories apply in the real world. In the first half of the interview, Dr. Zuleika explains what moral panic is and what causes this condition. She also discusses benevolent paternalism, a concept that on paper might sound harmless, but actually has devastating consequences for marginalised communities. And for those wondering why some communities may be reluctant to engage with police or government officials, stick around for sure because Dr. Zuleika gets into all of that. And no, we're not talking about conspiracy theories, right? This is real stuff, y'all. I am a sociologist, um, so that means that I study society and in particular how culture and institutions have an impact on the way we live our lives and um, the institutions that um, have an impact on our life choices and our life outcomes. So a lot of sociology um, is obviously research-based that's done in universities And a lot of that academic work is published in um, journals that are kind of locked um, under paywall because obviously uh, it's about generating the knowledge for our discipline. An applied sociologist, though, is somebody who moves away from um, universities. We work um, in other places. For example, we help to shape social policies. We evaluate government programs. We have a look at whether things are working for particular client groups. We work with communities to make sure that um, services and programs are meeting their needs. So my blog is uh, set up to try and bring those two worlds together. So I publish everything free and for the public. You don't have to be a sociologist to follow me and What I try and do is to summarise some of those um, ideas that come out of academia and to capture some of my experiences working um, across different settings 
to look at topical issues, particularly around social justice, social inclusion and racial justice. And so I write articles to try and help people, you know, provide guidelines for people who are looking to um, decrease racial discrimination in the workplace, for example, or as is the case, um, I write articles on issues like the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and my later, one of my latest articles is around um, how we can use um, an, an understanding of race to uh, contextualise the way in which the pandemic has been managed to date. Can you um, tell us a little bit about the name of your blog and why you decided on that? Sure. So my blog is called The Other Sociologist. So the concept of otherness is in the way in which many societies, especially societies that have been colonised, they tend to set things up in uh, binaries. So um, the dominant group is everything about them is natural and normal and um, not questioned. And then there's the others, everybody who's not the same as the dominant group. Um, and so otherness is a concept that describes how societies organise difference and how categories of difference reproduce inequality. So, for example, you know, woman is the other of man. Um, it's, it's about us versus them. It's about, um, you know, migrants being seen as the other to Anglo-Australians, for example. So my blog is about unpacking how uh, social difference is organised and how that feeds into inequality at different points in time for different groups. In your article, you talk a lot around moral panic. Can you speak about that and what conditions create moral panic? So moral panic is a situation where a particular group or a particular event might be um, seen as a threat to the existing social values and particularly the interests of elite members or dominant groups. It happens when there's a great period of stress or big social changes, which is like the pandemic at the moment. It gives rise to conditions where um, some groups become... Uh, more demonised and stigmatised as um, being the cause of um, whatever it is that is stressing people out. So it's happened across history in lots of different ways, um, but some of the features of a moral panic is basically that there'll always be um, a folk devil. So there'll be a group that becomes blamed for all of society's ills and many, um, in many cases... This is often racial minorities and certainly with the pandemic, it's been minority groups. Um, and some, some features of this is basically um, when you look at the 12 uh, restricted postcodes in Victoria, they are highly multi multicultural areas. And while they did have um, concerning patterns of infection, the data that was being released by the Health Department of Victoria was actually showing that um, they only made up around 50 together, the 12 suburbs made up around 50% of infections. So you could cut those, you could take probably any 12 different suburbs and probably still get um, some concerning patterns. But the focus of the primary 
lockdown was on those multicultural suburbs and um, widespread testing that included door knocking and police being involved and then eventually military. So it was a highly um, over-policed response that wasn't done in the first way when the majority of the infections were coming from middle class and affluent people who were returning from overseas travel. Um, so the moral panic is, it begins with people in authority basically um, feeding into the general populations, especially white people's fear that anybody who's different um, might be to, to blame for the spread of the pandemic, when in fact we are now, it is very clear that the problem is not race-based at all and it is based around um, class and inequality of the infections of the second wave are in working class and precariously employed occupations. It's aged workers. It's people working in the healthcare system. It's people working in um, meat factories. And the overwhelming majority of those people happen to be migrants and happen to be poorer people who are struggling to make ends meet, who don't have adequate sick leave, um, and for whom social distancing is probably not as easy as it is for middle-class people who can easily work from home. So moral panics very quickly latch onto people who are different minorities and blame them when, in fact, um, they often, in fact, almost never has a, has a moral panic been justified on a racial minority group. It's usually to do with inequalities that already exist in society that make um, certainly this pandemic and other public health um, responses be um, focused in the wrong areas. Um, so with that structural inequality, uh, on your article you mentioned uh, how benevolent paternalism plays um, a part in that and how, you know, we're seeing these people who are facing structural inequalities are being treated and how they're addressed. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what benevolent paternalism is and, uh, yeah, and how we can recognise that? Sure. So benevolent paternalism is the ways in which governments sometimes have the presumption that government is better placed to make decisions on behalf of citizens. Um, very rarely is policy made that way that's equally applied to everybody. Um, so this isn't just about the introduction of laws. This is about specific situations when governments will make um, particular rules or laws that take away the autonomy for from um, particular minority groups to make their own informed choices and often lead to a denial of um, civil rights. So um, an example of a, of a good public health measure is social distancing. When social distancing, we know that it works and when it's applied to everybody equally, so we're all being told the four things that we must do in order to stop the spread of infection, if that's applied to everyone equally, that's not an example of, of benevolent paternalism. That's just good evidence-based public health response. Um, Benevolent paternalism is when a particular group is being treated differently than everybody else on the presumption that they can't do the right thing, they can't be trusted to do the, the right thing on their own. So 
you can actually hear it in a lot of the political speeches that are being given, especially in those daily press releases where you have decision makers saying things like um, when they justified the lockdown of the Nine Towers, it was justified along these terms. We're protecting them. So the presumption is that these individuals, these people in the um, Nine Towers who are racial minorities, that they have to be locked down by police or otherwise um, they can't be trusted like the rest of Melbourne to follow the rules. When in fact, we know that there were other dynamics at play, such as the fact that social housing has a long history of um, being poorly serviced. The government already knew that those facilities were inadequate, that, there were, that it posed a public health interest. And instead of addressing those issues and planning together with the community, communicating and working collaboratively with um, the residents of the Nine Towers and the local grass groups, community groups that already service those um, individuals. Um, back in March, when the overseas situation was escalating and it looked like we, we needed to go into lockdown. So rather than addressing that months ago, the government decided to make a, a sudden decision to put those residents into lockdown. They said it was for their own good, but in fact, um, it, it led to further inequalities and um, further denial of um, informed consent around testing. And it meant that those residents actually were um, not getting culturally adequate um, resources, food, that they um, were getting poor communication when this could have been handled very differently. And in fact, it would have been handled very differently if those high-rise towers contained affluent white Anglo-Saxon Australians. With that, the why would sort of racialized communities be reluctant to also the people that we see in the nine towers um are mostly people of um african background asian background um migrants um and as you were mentioning like the police and how uh, the government has responded way late when they could have put measures in place earlier to kind of avoid these situations um, that would uh, clearly kind of play into how people, how these people are interacting with the police and the government and that distrust. Um, can you speak more about how all of that leads to like reluctance to, to engage with um, sort of the measures that were being put in place and how, yeah, how they were being treated? Absolutely. So um, my past research has looked at this exact issue. So um, governments are constantly um, wringing their hands as to why racial minorities and, um, and disadvantaged groups don't collaborate and don't come forward more willingly. And the fact is that these communities have complex needs. So on the, some of the reasons why um, residents might be um, not as forthcoming and would have actually very good reasons not to trust their interactions. Um, it could be partly because um, where those migrants have been forced to migrate or perhaps they were asylum seekers and refugees, they 
may have experienced um, very uh, negative and um, a lot of persecution, a lot of negative experiences in their original home country or, or oftentimes people are relocated to many countries in between before they finally resettle in Australia. They may have spent time in uh, refugee camps and so they are constantly exposed to very poor behaviours by state authorities and so by the time they settle in Australia, um, of course it makes sense that they may not trust um, the government here either. And the government knows that. There's a lot of research that they've produced that already shows that. Um, and that means that governments already understand that a better way to approach communities is to build trust. And that trust needs to come over time. Um, and I would think that there's very little trust in a situation where um, the government already understands that the social housing dwellings are overcrowded and that they are not the, the facilities are not up to code um, and residents have already raised issues and nothing's been done about it, well, that already tells residents that perhaps the government's not on their side. Then there are other issues that could be in terms of um, a lot of services are not culturally, linguistically or religiously adequate. So a lot of the burden falls on community groups that are not-for-profit and often it's just volunteer-run and that's what happened. So the government, the state government made a decision to go into the Nine Towers without adequate planning. They um, obviously provided incorrect food. Um, they didn't provide timely medications for people who have medical conditions. Um, and instead of working together um, and adequately funding those uh, community groups, it actually came down to um, them providing their own services. So this is something that's also come out in previous research that I've done um, in other parts of Australia, minority groups end up having to fend for themselves. So the, they're inadequately funded. Um, the services that are mainstream don't, aren't fit for purpose, don't suit the needs of um, migrant um, and refugee communities um, and uh, are often quite adversarial. People in social housing are often having to prove their eligibility to stay um, within those social housing environments and it actually leads, leaves them in a more vulnerable position. So if your landlord is effectively the state and the state hasn't been looking after your house, um, why would you trust them if, when they come knocking on the door with the police? And then more broadly, those areas of Flemington and North Melbourne um, have been subjected to over-policing. There's already a lot of um, grassroots community-led initiatives to try and um, deal with the fact that police target racial minority and religious minorities in those areas, um, you know, pulling them over, um, harassing them, using violence when, um, in fact, it is not the job of police to regularly um, deal with citizens using violence. And so all of these things just um, create a pattern where Local communities have no basis of, of good faith to trust that the government will do the right thing by them. And unfortunately, the pandemic has just amplified those patterns because, um, of course, they used a, a police-led response um, and unfortunately has probably done quite a lot of harm um, and has shown those people in social housing that the government doesn't have their best interests at heart. Um, there is an inquiry. 
about the broader hotel quarantine. Um, and there are, in response, uh, local communities have um, produced their own reports um, showing about the poor behaviour of police and government officials. And, and it shows a pattern um, that perhaps we do need a separate inquiry on the, on the way in which this was mismanaged um, for people in social housing. The government has a responsibility to uh, produce a, a culturally relevant and culturally safe response um, alongside a public health um, plan to manage the pandemic. Uh, this is one of the, the biggest health problems we've had in Australia for, for in recent years. Um, it is something that's evolving. However, the best practice of public health is well documented and well known to state authorities and they just haven't followed that when it comes to racial minorities. Such an amazing interview. We learned so much during this conversation. We hope you did too. If you're interested in sociology minus the academic jargon, check out Dr. Zaleka Zavaios's blog, Other Sociologist at othersociologist.com. Her Twitter handle is Other Sociology, one word. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Last week, Sampa the Great dropped the visuals for the track Time's Up. The song features Crown, another incredible local artist you should get behind. Time's Up is a track that is putting the music industry on notice, letting them know that you cannot use our labor and then discard us when you're through. The video for Time's Up is on Sampa the Great's YouTube channel. We mentioned earlier her campaign to support African youth accessing appropriate mental health support. Sampa teamed up with Polar Psychology, a clinic that provides culturally responsive therapy. Every cent you donate will go towards the therapy costs of African youth accessing the service. Now, let's hear Sampa the Great featuring yeah. Crown Time's with up, their powerful track, Time's Up. <laughs> Yeah, it's our true black excellence. Don't sit next to us. Lay down like script the jobless. Got invest in this black face industry. Line don't invest in me. Only want the money if I bash like history. In the industry, I'm not a slave on a record that rose brave. Call it blessings, a cute angle out the rat race. I keep from going under time. Think of a family's holding the spears. Exception is equity used to buy your melody. All I, I, I hear. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, scheme and it's a killer. Ice in the Cause I 
I've seen the industry kill dream of a dreamer. Cause I've seen the industry kill dreams in a dreamer. And I've seen the industry kill dreams of a dreamer. And I've seen the industry scheme and it's a killer. And I've seen the industry kill dream of a dreamer. And I've seen the industry kill dreams of a dreamer. And I've seen the industry scheme and it's a killer. It's a master plan of breakers on the scheme. Daddy schemers. Such a wonderful song. That was Time's Up with Sampa the Great featuring Crown. And that's a wrap for this week. We want to thank Dr. Zuleika Zavaios for making sociology accessible to people outside of academia. Shout out to Sampa the Great and Crown, as well as everyone else who made the video possible. If you haven't seen the clip for Time's Up already, get on it ASAP, I'm telling you. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. My name is Boston. We hope you have an amazing week. Brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.